may be risky to, to form too tight a correlation between the two, but it's a new ref- opportunities to reflect on what is essential. Mm-hmm. You know, what is at the root, what is most important to us, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think in extremists like this, whatever the reason, we have an opportunity to reflect on on what matters most and also to try to make meaning of what is happening when it feels so disintegrated and so kind of explosive in its disruption. Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin Connor, your host. I'm Abigail Visco Russert, co-host and co-producer. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. In this episode, we are talking about rituals and rites of passage. You'll hear from Sue Phillips, ordained minister and co-founder of Sacred Design Lab. Sue reflects on the new environments in which we find ourselves as we reimagine the rituals and rites of passage that ground and shape our communities. You'll hear from the Reverend Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean, who will help us wrestle with what's next for the church. And you will hear from Marta Abouaji, a rising ministry leader whose work with Springtide Research Institute is aimed at understanding and impacting how young people experience and express community, identity, and meaning-making. I'm Sue Phillips. I am living in Tacoma, Washington, which is on the Puget Sound, just south of Seattle, where I live with my wife and our kids. And uh, I am the co-founder, along with my colleagues, Casper Turkile and Angie Thurston of Sacred Design Lab, which is a research and development lab that designs for the human soul. We help organizations to imbue um, and infuse their experiences and programs and products with soul. It is amazing work. My, my history is in congregational life as a Unitarian Universalist minister. So a big part of my heart is still there, but I'm really just thriving in this kind of non-congregational ministry out in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you ca- tell us a little bit more about um, Sacred Design, like examples of the work, examples of that kind of work? Oh, I'd love to. We we are sort of context agnostic. So we work with, I'll just call them clients for shorthand, in a whole bunch of different sectors from healthcare to tech to the nonprofit world and foundation world for a lot of different reasons. But the fundamental value that we bring is sort of similar, um, which I would describe as we're, we're very concerned with that so many of the social problems of our day are like social fragmentation, um, racism, uh, loneliness and isolation, mental health crises. So many of these problems are soul deep in their origins and therefore the solutions need to be deepened by soul. And so we help people across all these contexts to basically um, add the dimension of soul to their strategic approach to solving the problems that are true in their own business context. Mm -hmm. So that can look like um, helping the Obama Foundation to develop reflection experiences for their kind of citizen cohorts in their Mm -hmm. young adult um, work. Uh, That can look like helping um, Pinterest to imagine what their new headquarters building would look like if it were designed 
for the thriving souls of the people who worked there. Um, it can look like helping a major denominational foundation reimagine that entire um, denomination for the future, translating the, the lineage gifts of that tradition and casting it into a kind of fresh, fresh new future. So we work in religious spaces, we work in so-called secular spaces, um, just trying to kind of design our way through some of the most um, challenging uh, design challenges of the moment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. Wow, it is, it is. Um, it's fascinating, it really is. Um, as you know, we are here to talk about uh, rites of passage and mm what we are all feeling this year as rites of passage come and go in these strange ways, if you can even have them, or you reinvent them, or you reimagine them. Anything from weddings to retirements to funerals to, you know, 16th birthday parties, all kinds of stuff. What, can you describe what rites of passages are? <laughs> sure. Um, well, it, First of all, I am not a sociologist, and I think there is a kind of sociological answer to this question. Sure. I, I am a sort of public theologian, <laughs> yes. so I'm going to lean into uh, that definition. I mean, I think of rites of passage as being uh, external markers of internal changes, often at a moment of transition, where there's a kind of co-creation between the, the external and the internal. So the person is changed by virtue of something that's happening on the outside, and the outside community slash world is changed by something um, that is happening on the inside of the individual. So it's this like kind of dynamic moment uh, where something is different than it was before that um, usually on purpose celebrates or marks the time that was before from the time mm -hmm. that was after. So there's a really important, I think, function of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and connected to that, I think, lineage, a sense that people have been through this thing before and are holding, reaching out to receive uh, this newly blanked person um, mm -hmm. on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that feels like a start. There's a lot of ways I could, you know, lots of examples I'm sure we all could give for what those are. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because it, it strikes me, our, our next question is, you know, how has COVID-19 disrupted or affected rites of passage. And you can answer that from the perspective of sitting inside of the American, North American culture, or, you know, I'm sure that you have some clientele in the work that you do that might be international as well, and thinking about how the pandemic has hit different places differently. Mm -hmm. But it also, you know, I'm interested in the layer of your answer to this question with, um, you know, your, your regular work also is about maybe constructing and building almost recognition of, of the, the depth of how these kinds of rites of passages function, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So, so I'm curious as to, you know, how, how has COVID disrupted rites of passage and how does your work, you know, continuously point to helping people notice um, mm -hmm. rites of passage that maybe are missing or mm -hmm. need a reboot or, you know, things like that? Oh my gosh. There are so many examples across all these dimensions. I mean, I just saw a, a wonderful piece from the Union for Reformed Judaism 
which has just done a major effort to redesign the High Holy Days. Mm. They worked with IDEO and a consulting firm called Mobius um, to completely reimagine because, of course, uh, the, the physical environment that folks are going to be able to experience High Holy Days in are going to be totally different. Of course, people not probably not able to go to, to temple, synagogue. Um, so there's so much sort of work being done now to reimagine the rites of passage that we know to recognize as such, the sort of holiday type rites of passage. But then I think of the countless others that have been disrupted. I mean, it's, I think it's better to talk categorically than about specific rites of passage. So for example, mm-hmm. so not all, but many rites of passage have a public component uh, and quite obviously, what is public has changed so that now a lot of what is public mm-hmm. is mediated by the virtual digital world. Mm-hmm. So still public, but not in person. But at the same time, that, that is certainly a limitation. But at the same time, there's a way of being tr- translocal now that when something is in person, we could never have achieved. And there's an intimacy in that that I think... Um, is a disruption to rites of passage. But for example, mm-hmm. when we're on Zoom calls, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in my house, you are probably in your house, and that is a different way of being together than if we were in a third location all together in person. So um, I think rites of passage are partly disrupted in ways that are also expansive as well as limiting. Obviously, we can't be in person. But also, I think time is working differently right now. People's mm-hmm. experience of time, mm-hmm. yeah. the the weird kind of drawing out of all these months of COVID time that feel like they're, <laughs> I don't know, what is it, a factor of 10? <laughs> that it feels like every day is yes. actually 10? Yes, oh, yes. Oh. So to the extent that rites of passage mark time before and time after, mm-hmm. you know, when every day feels like a Tuesday, it's, I think the, the, the magnitude of the impact of rites of passage yes. is, is sort of weird and disrupted. Uh, so, I, you know, there are elements like that that are just disorienting. Mm-hmm. The good news is rites of passage are designed to orient us mm-hmm. and to stabilize our experience, to stabilize how we experience our experience. So it is a handhold at the same time. Um, I could I could give some specific examples like high school graduations, for yeah. example, which we, we read we all read a lot in the news about how, you know, strange high school graduations were and how bereft a lot of um, high school seniors felt about you know not having the whole package, and I guess this is another kind of dimension of rites of passage that I think it's important to lift up, which is so much of the value comes from the kind of secondary and tertiary people and experiences that are built around rites of passages. Mm -hmm. So most high school seniors had a graduation ceremony of some kind, right? Mm -hmm. They did the drive-by thing, they did the Zoom thing, they did something like that. But it's actually not the ceremony, of course, that is the rite of passage. Mm -hmm. It's all the things around it. It's the anticipation. It's the days and days and days of talking to others about it. It's being surrounded by strangers, but not just strangers, the strangers who love the people that you have gone through this with. Mm-hmm. And that kind of expands the community around it with whom we're sharing the rite of passage, even if we didn't kind of 
factor that into our mathematics of what the right meant to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, in, in general, I think it's the breakdown of some of those um, those looser secondary connections that is actually one of the deepest losses of COVID times is not our family members missing them. It's actually more like our barista friend Mm -hmm. and Mm. the abuela who lives on the corner who Mm -hmm. has had to stay inside. And it's all the, all the people around us um, that we don't have direct connection with every Mm -hmm. day that we miss the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about my, I have a good friend from college who passed away three weeks ago from a sarcoma Mm -hmm. cancer. And throughout this process, I have been more in touch with him and his family this year than in 20 years, like from March to today to, to when he passed away. And then last night I participated in a memorial where those pretty much 80 to 90 people were on a, a Zoom call last night from 9 p.m. Eastern time until midnight. He had friends from every walk of life who I would have never met. So I feel like we're creating new rites of passage. And I wonder what you think some of the learning lessons about rites of passage are considering like our stay-at-home orders and really the kind of indefinite nature of this. We don't know when we'll be quote-unquote normal again. First of all, um, may Kevin be a blessed memory to you and to everyone who loved him. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, you're seeing it. You innovated last night Mm -hmm. doing an ancient thing of connecting with others around the shared experience of love and affection for this beautiful person celebrating their life, but in a, an entirely new way. And I think that's the kind of innovation we're going to see in COVID. It's actually not about new content. It's about mm. new distribution systems mm. to carry mm-hmm. the meaning and purpose that mm-hmm. humans have stewarded and given to us over the, the countless thousands of years, where the, the through ways for the meaning making and the connecting yeah. are actually very consistent. But how we how we offer those to one another, like literally the platforms that is the word we would use now are, are changing and we're, we're learning how to adapt that distribution system. I want to jump off there and I'd love to hear you talk about more about these distribution systems, but also link it to what you said earlier. It's really stuck with me when you talked about um, the expansive nature of our communication right now and the fact that, you know, we can, I can see your bookcase and you can see my, you know, uh, windows, (laughs) you know, things like that. And, you know, uh, what, what struck me too about the expansive nature of my community in the midst Mm -hmm. of COVID was walking around my neighborhood and really getting to know the names of the kids who were mm. in my neighborhood in a way that I hadn't before. And I'm the director of the Institute for Youth Ministry. So you would think that I would have known the names of the young people in my neighborhood, you know, <laughs> but there's this, you know, I'm thinking about that expansive nature of our community and the way that's expanded to the folks who are right in front of our faces and then how that also bridges to our dissemination of rites of passage to um, the way that we communicate the, the ancient things that will continue to be the ties that bind us together. Um, can, you, can you give more concrete examples? Can you reflect on that a little bit more? 
Well, you asked for something concrete and I'm actually going to give something more abstract first, Great. but then, then you all can help me fill in the concrete Great. parts, <laughs> which is that I feel like there, there, this moment and not just the pandemic of disease, but also the pandemic of racism and the uprising that has occurred. Yes. These have been such mm -hmm. disruptive in a, in a, in a destructive and glorious way, um, have, have, disrupted some of our old assumptions, some of our old ways of knowing, um, our day-to-day -day experiences. But I think what bo both pandemics share, this is maybe risky to, to form too tight a correlation between the two, but it's a new ref opportunities to reflect on what is essential. Mm -hmm. You know, what is at the root, what is most important to us, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think in extremists like this, whatever the reason, we have an opportunity to reflect on um, on what matters most and also to try to make meaning of what is happening when it feels so disintegrated and so kind of explosive in its disruption. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, I mean, I think of you going and, and in fact getting to know the kids' names because my guess is that you have a, a fresh motivation, I should ask you actually why, but, but you have a, a new appreciation for how important it is that you know that, how important it is that you feel rooted in your hyper-local community and that you know the souls that are around you so that you might share more of this experience together. I feel like that's the, that's the opportunity and that's also the, the page on which it gets written are these little moments in our lives. Yes, it is these mm -hmm. big rites of passage. Mm -hmm. Yes, weddings have changed. But I also think about the countless youth I saw at Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. events here in, in my town, who this is their first one. This is their first time out on the street. For many, even young folks, it's their 50th. But, you know, those are rites of passage too. And I think whenever there's a, an extremist moment, there are fresh expressions of old things. Fresh expressions of old things. That really stuck with us. And we wanted to engage with a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary who shares Sue's penchant for cultivating a conversation around fresh expressions. For years, we've seen new forms of ministry emerging all across the landscape of scholars, activists, and congregational leaders who tend to the human soul. How will this moment in our history spur the church to renegotiate, as Sue said, our distribution systems? I'm Kenta Creasy Dean. I teach at Princeton Seminary as the Mary D. Synod Professor of Youth, Church, and Culture, um, which means I teach youth ministry and education and spiritual formation and social innovation. And um, I also work with ministry incubators. Um, I'm the co-founder of that outfit. We work with a lot of churches trying to help them um, launch new things and sustainably as quickly as possible. And um, yeah, and I am married to Kevin and am the mom of two adult children who um, do not think they need to be at home very much anymore. Which is true because they're old enough not to be, but I miss them. Mm. As we talk today, as you know, we're talking about rites of passage. And so I'd love for you to maybe frame that for us. Give us either a description or a definition of this concept. What, what are rites of passage? 
Well, as I understand rites of passage, they are, it's kind of an anthropological um, concept, right? That they come from um, cultures where there is a marked ritual that um, separates youth or childhood from adulthood. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those cultures don't even have a stage called adolescence. You go on a 30-day walkabout and you know, when you're 11 or 12 and when you come back, you are a man, you know, you are part of the male adult culture. And um, one of the, so there's a ritual component to it or an identifiable um, marker. And of course, one of the things that um, our society has been known for is having a lack of these kind of rites of passage, at least that are identifiable in some way. There's this interesting layer to this idea of rites of passage inside of of that uh, particular life experience, right? Like a, a passing into sort of like another layer level of adulthood. Um, and so I guess to, to bring that back around to a question, like I'm thinking about the the rites of passage that the church has had to navigate during, during COVID, extending b- both into in a really deep way adolescence and then beyond um like the anointing of the sick i'm thinking of that and the and the priests who have had to navigate in in host, that in hospital settings and i'm wondering like kenda if you could if you could reflect a little bit i kind of want to ask you the same question we asked sue like what in what ways has covid have you watched covid disrupt mm-hmm. rites of passage either with you or with the people you serve in in the different contexts that you occupy and what a great question i i think one of the things that i think has been so um such a source of disorientation with covid is it has erased our our social punctuation mm our highs and our lows are the things that make us pause, the things that um, put an exclamation point by things like graduations and weddings. and All that stuff has been seriously compromised by COVID. And so we're, it's kind of like we're in this space where we are living in this run on sentence where we don't know where the beginnings and the ends are. We don't know how, we don't know how to mark time or seasons or rituals in the same. We don't have the same rituals to mark the seasons and so on. And I mean, my my experience of that has been pretty typical. I think of a lot of people in COVID. Um, uh, the, the guy who was my the most important youth pastor in my own teenage years years ago made me promise to do his funeral, which is not exactly the thing that you want to do, but you also don't say no to that. And so um, I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, anyway, he died during COVID mm. and there was no funeral. And what I, the, the loss, as I was talking to his, his widow, the loss wasn't so much the loss of the funeral um, the, or the fact even that family couldn't gather because uh, they were all over the place. But the loss was there was no container, no place mm-hmm. to share the stories. You know, the thing that you do when you get together at those highly punctuated events is you tell stories mm-hmm. about the person and about how they intersect with your life and things that you remember 
And, you know, I think that's true of all of those events. And so in some ways we've lost our occasion to celebrate our stories. And that is a much deeper loss than the actual event itself. So the, the rite of passage in some ways is the container. We have this need to have moments where the stories matter in a much more intense and concentrated way. And I think that has been one of the disorienting places, um, for myself anyway, that COVID has brought on. Um, I miss I miss those gatherings of telling mm-hmm. stories. Yeah, what you're saying, Kenda, earlier about um, the kind of the t- the time, I think that's what's been hard. We've actually talked about it a couple of times um, with other people on the podcast. It's like the continuum of time without any boundaries, any open right. or yeah. closed moments. Right. Like we're just sort of like living through the day, and suddenly you remember, like I should probably feed people lunch. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be helpful. Um, and, and I'm thinking about like rites of passage, but also routine and some of the kind of routines of the church. So like, can you reflect on things that we've, and I'm going to say lost, but cause I, yeah. we get to some, some found too, and some hope, but the sure, things sure. like normal Sunday morning worship, can you talk about like, again, with, with the like, continuing, what yeah, what is that? Like the continuing the conversation <laughs> about like these, this yeah. reads rites of passage. What, what is that? What are we living through that? Like even Sunday morning worship is like completely upended right now. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's really called into question yeah. what we, what we, what's, oh, these are things we're going to be living with for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Things that people people already ask these questions somewhere in their bones, but either they hadn't mentioned them out loud or they hadn't mentioned them to other, you know, in, it hadn't been a serious discussion. Like, like does it count to do church? Mm-hmm. If we're not together, does it count to do communion? It was interesting that Easter fell really early in COVID, mm-hmm. you know? And it created this crisis among church higher ups. I mean, I'm in a hierarchical Christian tradition. I'm a United Methodist. So, you know, bishops happen if you're Methodist. Hmm. And, you know, it was like, well, um, do I serve communion? What do I do? What does that look like? I mean, cause it's, it's like, it was written in law or so we thought that you gathered for communion. Mm-hmm. But then when that couldn't happen and you don't have a, you don't have the quote unquote common cup, you don't have any of the things. Well, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, people very quickly took matters into their own hands. Right. <laughs> and it was better to have the, to have a form of the ritual, even though it had, it changed substantially the, um, the way it happened fact that it happened was more important than whether we did it right. And it's, it's funny because I just, I, we just did a drive through communion at my church last Sunday, mm-hmm. the first time we've gathered anywhere. And we were just in cars in the parking lot. But anyway, I, I'm the ordained person on the premises. So I was leading the um, liturgy. And, um, and one of the things that we talked about as we got ready, like we said, are we doing this right? We don't know. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I, we, I took some comfort in the fact that, you know, the Last Supper, which we commemorate with communion, that was 2,000 years ago. There weren't any cameras. So, you know, we don't really know how that went down. Mm-hmm. And 
And the fact is, Jesus does not say, hey, do this to remember exactly what I ate and how what I said and, you know, where everybody sat. He said, do this to remember me. And so it's it's that promise that we are participating in that that mattered the most. It mattered that we did it. It didn't matter that we did it right. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds like that sounds like if my bishop is listening to this, I'm going to be in hot, hot water, I'm sure. But um, the. It, it sounds like I don't care about the, the quote, order part of word sacrament and order. And I do think it matters, but I don't, I think we really have, I kind of love that this period is making us ask those questions because mm-hmm. really, really what does matter here? Kendall, we're kind of in this zone and, and I do want to dip back into uh, eventually sort of your your scholarship, but I, I want to stay in this way that COVID has disrupted us. Yeah. How have you seen in your work the, the new rites of passage? If, mm-hmm. if that's even a thing that a phrase I can use, <laughs> I don't, yeah. Yeah. you know, I don't even know how to ask it really, but new ways of community building and sustaining. Are there, are there fingerprints of these things that you are, are seeing? Yeah, i that's such a good question. I I hope I don't know whether we're seeing them yet, but inevitably, inevitably, we will be um, gathering in different ways. We will be, you know, doing this work in different ways. The um, the utter necessity of being with one another in their pain. Mm. Um, has been laid bare by this to the point where people took to the streets after George Floyd's murder to be able to be in solidarity with that pain. It, despite COVID, they've been cooped up long enough, I know, but you know, it was it, it if it that that primary need for the church to be in solidarity with those who suffer hmm. is really pointed, I think, right now. And the fact that some of these other things that we've held up as being our most important things, like like the like the sanctuary with that carpet, we worked so hard to make the right color. You know, I mean, mm. really, yeah, is that what that's for? Is it re- is that building that we put so much effort in really so that we can gather? Because it turns out we gather without it. Yeah. So what is it for? Mm-hmm. Why do we have these gifts and these assets in our communities? What you know, it. I think it's raising all sorts of questions. And look, I think these questions were being asked or starting to be asked all over the place anyway. It's just that we would have argued for 25 years about these things. The I, Whether you can or can't do communion online, I promise you, in the United Methodist Church, we would have argued for a century mm. before that would have been settled. And it's done now. I mean, it's so... So many of the things that we've been doing because we we kind of know we've we've been poking, you know, because we kind of know this is the we've known for a while we're in the last dance of the church as we know it. Mm -hmm. But but I know in my own teaching, I've been teaching students the steps to a last dance. Mm -hmm. And I'm done with that because that the part that dance is over now. Mm -hmm. That dance ended in February. And there's a new dance that I, I don't think we have the steps to yet. And my students and 
people who are pastoring young people and young people themselves are going to be the ones who create that dance. And it's not built on nothing. If they haven't thrown out everything that comes before it, they've learned some good moves from their parents and from mm-hmm. the tradition of the church. Yeah. But what it looks like in the music we we put it to, all of that stuff, that is inevitably a new thing now. And we will, well, here's what's going to happen. We will go back and we will try to do things the way we've done them before. Mm-hmm. And 10 people are going to show up mm-hmm. because they're the 10 who remember, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But the predictions are that something like 20 or 30% of the people who gathered online before COVID will gather online afterwards. And I'm not clear whether that is predicting before a vaccine or after a vaccine, but we will not be the kind of communities we were even with a vaccine going forward. People will have learned new habits. Right. They have le- they will have learned <clears throat> to both encounter God and to ask questions of God hmm. that they didn't ask before. I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a religious pro, you mm. know, so we we are holding loosely, you know. Our first our first inclination, whenever you're threatened, is to hold on more tightly. But as time goes on, I think we're holding it more loosely, and I think there's some real grace in that. The shackles of normalcy are off, right? So, um, so we're too tired to be very creative right now. But all of the, all of that tightly packed clay soil has been disrupted. And that means there's some new stuff that can take root. We will not be the kind of communities we were. If Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean is right, and if we are entering a time for the church in which the shackles are off altogether, and if you, our listeners who are pastoring right now, if you and the young people you minister alongside are the dancers who will choreograph this next dance, then we want to know, what are the best moves you have learned from your parents, from the saints who have gone before you? As Sue Phillips said, it may not be the content that changes. After all, Christian leaders are still dancing to the arc of the Christian story. But the shape and the form we take on the dance floor is most certainly changing. We wanted to engage someone who works closely with young people, with the choreographers of this next dance in order to gain insight. Who are these young people God is using even now to shape a church impacted by multiple pandemics in 2020? How are they doing? What do they need? How can we listen to their needs and to God's work in their lives in order to discern new movements of belonging in and for the church? Yeah, my name is Marta Abawaji. I live in Wilmington, Delaware, and I currently work for Springtide Research Institute as their community engagement specialist. Uh, Springtide is a sociological research institute that is committed to listening to the lives of young people, young people ages 13 to 25, and and we want to understand both their inner lives and their outer lives. Wow. And how long have you been with Springtide? It's approaching one year. Um, Springtide is just about a year old um, themselves. So we've done a lot in this first year in terms of 
national research projects we've taken on and studies we've released, but um, I began in December 2019. Wow. And can you give us a little bit of background, Marta, with your journey to this role at Springtide? Yeah, the the reality of my professional background is layered. I've been in a lot of places, but the common thread is working and seeking to accompany young people. Mm -hmm. I've done that through churches. I've done that through a number of nonprofits. Um, I've done that in public schools. Um, So sometimes that's been in a community liaison role. Sometimes that's been in um, pastoring and teaching capacities, but a commitment to really understand young people um, and their religious lives and their perspectives is what knits my background altogether. Most mm. recently before Springtide, I was at Middle Collegiate Church mm. in New York City, mm-hmm. which is actually the oldest continuously operating Protestant church in the U.S. Wow. So it has, yeah, it has a long history, but it also has a very um, progressive focus in terms of the ways they are connecting faith and justice in very practical ways, whether that's racial justice, LGBTQ justice, economic justice. So I got to work with infants up through 30-year-olds, 30-somethings, as the director of children, youth, and young adults there. So that's my most recent experience, which which definitely influences my role at Springtide because uh, I'm coming from a practitioner space very Mm. recently to now be more on um, the research side, but still doing community engagement. So I still get to connect with young people. Um, One way I do that is through our our own podcast called the voices of young people podcast. We just released season three this week. Um, And I get to connect with our research advisory board, which Abigail is a member of (laughs) and all different stakeholders. So having that practitioner vantage point, I think makes me so much stronger in terms of the community engagement I do through Springtide. Talk to us um, about how you understand ritual and rites of passage. I have a I have a middle schooler. Like my my youngest son just went to middle school two weeks ago. Wow! So which yeah. which which meant that in June, like they didn't do any kind of graduation mm-hmm. or anything to like move him forward. We just sort of had a family dinner, and you know the drill. Like it was everything's weird this year. I wonder from the from your perspective. Um, with interviewing the young people, um, he's younger than your demographic, but in interviewing them, what are the questions? Um, and I'm assuming that some of the interviews have happened like during COVID, but correct me if I'm wrong, but what are young people asking about? What have you gleaned from the interviews about how this year has been disruptive or how this moment of racial reckoning has been disruptive. I'd be actually curious the racial demographic of some of the kids too, like where they're, you know, just kind of all of that, all of that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, Well, just to first hit your last point, we definitely have um, a, a spread of all different ethnicities across the United States. 
that we're in conversation with. And in each report we release, there's a breakdown of those demographics. Awesome. Um, and sometimes we look at certain data points in light of race or ethnicity to understand, okay, when we look at the experience of loneliness and social isolation, is that just across the board? Mm -hmm. Or are there particular uh, ethnic groups in the US who have more pronounced rates of loneliness and isolation? Mm -hmm. um, we also just released um, a section of our State of Religion and Young People 2020 study this week, a, a closer look section of it we released early that's all about virtual environments. Hmm. So we got to hear a lot hmm. about what young people are saying when it comes to school online or hmm. worship or faith communities online or work, you know, with young professionals now moving online. Um, and you know, the general feedback of that is that young people are like so many adults are exhausted by the virtual nature of everything, but are still looking to make the best of it. Um, but those those findings you can find directly on our on our website, even um, in our in the news channel. If you go to the very bottom of our page, that's where the new study on virtual environments is there. And there's a press release with all of that that data, but that also connects with a study we did in March, just about social distancing. Mm -hmm. And we asked young people, what was their experience? Because we had already assessed levels of loneliness and isolation right before COVID. Mm -hmm. so, and we already saw very concerning numbers where one out of three young people told us that they feel completely alone much of the time hmm. uh, or that 40% had no one to talk to and felt left out. We thought, okay, is there going to be some sort of protective barrier if young people are in religious communities? And discouragingly, we found only 37% of young people. So it's basically the same as that 40% number who attend religious groups said they have no one to talk to. Mm, wow. So like I said, those are pre-COVID numbers. Mm -hmm. So then we did our social distance study and we found that eight out of 10 young adults, um, they, they were lonely, but they felt less lonely when a trusted adult outside their home checked in on them. Mm. So, you know, some of these Young people might be living with family, especially if they were maybe were college students and had to return home. Um, but some of them are, are young people who aren't necessarily even living with a trusted adult. But when it was an adult outside their home who called, who checked in, it had a real impact on, on their rates of loneliness. Um, we also saw that the people checking in were often teachers, bosses, coaches, which is wonderful. I'm so glad that there are a variety of trusted adults who connect, but it was less than 1% of clergy or faith leaders who wow. were doing that checking mm -hmm. in. So, you know, when I said about eight out of 10, that's like 75% of young people say, yeah, I've had someone check in. I felt less lonely, but 
who who's doing the checking in. So mm. it makes the title of your podcast very <laughs> apropos of just mm. how how to be church in the time of COVID. Mm. Um, so to get get to the part of your question about even what you observe with your son mm. and rituals and rites of passage, I'm thinking what are our youth leaders or youth pastors or mm. or clergy doing to fill in the gap there? If such a small amount are actually checking in with young people, yeah, when it's just the, we're going to have the graduation transition family dinner at home where maybe it would have been a picnic at the park with family and friends, or maybe it mm. would have been at a restaurant, or maybe the school would have had some sort of ceremony that didn't get to happen in person. How is the church stepping up and stepping in? How are leaders demonstrating in tangible ways to young people that they still recognize these achievements or these important milestones and life transitions? One more follow-up on that, just to hear from your personal experience too, is were, were there any like rituals or rites of passage for you in your life or someone you love dearly in your life that were disrupted by COVID? Hmm. Yeah, well, um, you know, plenty of friends postponed weddings <laughs> that would have happened yeah. in 2020. Um, there were certainly trips I would have done to, to visit friends. I, I got married myself. Um, at the end of 2019 and wow. we were like we'll do a honeymoon in summer 2020 like <laughs> so, you know marriage is certainly a big big rite of passage um, yes. that comes with so many rituals around all all the celebrations that lead up and follow but uh, yeah so I, I've certainly felt some of those that get disrupted which I think gives you a different sense of empathy with the, when you think of class of 2020 and all the ways, yeah, the end of, end of senior years, whether that's high school or college, just did not get to look the same. And so much build up to that moment on a stage with a diploma that for most didn't get to happen. Um, yeah. The anticlimacticness mm -hmm. of, of finishing when you maybe don't feel like you finished really. Um, yeah, there's plenty of disruptions to work life that just rhythms change, whether those were work trips or, or being in person with colleagues. Um, the whole world is feeling disruption, which mm. actually gives me some sense of comfort and solidarity that this isn't just a unique dilemma I'm facing mm. but in that reality that I mean that doesn't make it less less painful or less of a bummer but I think it does well I hope it gives us more of a way to sympathize or empathize with how someone else might be feeling with with a major disruption to something they were anticipating mm -hmm. mm. Marta can you talk a little bit about um Looking at ritual and rites of passage again, um, can you talk about it from a theological perspective in, in your work? Yeah, I. One thing that I really love about working at Springtide is that we aren't beholden to a particular 
religious tradition or ideology that our interest is focused um, across the board. And so it's not just for Christian young people, that includes Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, Jewish, Hindu, humanist, atheist, across the board, young people. And so that means we get to learn a lot from listening to young people about different religious expressions and experiences. Um, so broadly speaking, theologically, um, different traditions and different faith systems have a way of seeing this stage of life as being significant in terms of entering adulthood or having a different connection to God or the divine or of ascribing to certain practices um, of going from a child to a young person. There's, it's really remarkable how many different cultures and religions take, take that in as something significant to mark, to celebrate, to take pause and reflect on. Um, so from my own tradition, as, as a person who practices Christianity, um, and has worked across many interfaith and multi-faith lines, but has certainly worked in, in Christian-specific settings as well. Um, I think we have to see how young people um, aren't just transitioning to a new stage, but still need trusted guides to accompany them through that next stage and to have some way of, of marking that, of not just okay, you're considered a young adult now, or you're considered um, an adult and this is the responsibility you have, or this is the way that you're gonna own your faith in new ways, um, but that you're not making that transition alone. You're not siloed. Um, you're not expected to just figure out things individually, that the communion of saints, that the the people who um, in your faith community that you're doing life with are going to accompany you. And for it not to, to be um, said, but for it to be demonstrated. And so when rituals or rites of passage allow for there to be some sort of intergenerational connection that maybe partners um, a young person with a mentor or a sponsor or some sort of um, person that oversees maybe their confirmation or um, their baptism or, you know, whatever the ritual might be, that that's really lovely when it's done in a demonstrated way. But what's even more profound is when that young person actually feels beyond the ceremony in the day-to-day -day mundane life that they feel there's an adult or multiple adults who are in their corner, who know their story, who are a part of their journey um, into a new stage of life, into a new grade, into a new experience, that they have someone who's trustworthy, who's not looking at them with condemnation or judgment, but wants to really um, hear them, know them, cheer them on in all the next stages and all the next milestones to come. Um, 
that sort of accompaniment is is so much of what Springtide's research points to and and really advocates for. Like I said, we don't have a religious um, position or affiliation to to have you know our our research backed up by emphasizing one tradition over the other. But what we do <laughs> emphasize is the need for young people to have trusted guides. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's all to say that theologically, I think we're not meant to do life alone. Um, mm. And young people shouldn't, and unfortunately, so often are doing life alone and have told us how, how much they feel that isolation. Um, so if we took seriously that we're, we're offering adults to young people in rites of passage, how much more profound if, if we did that, like I said, through you know, it's not the glamorous quinceanera moment, <laughs> um, but it's the, I'm stressed about my chemistry test and I don't know why I uh, can't get along with my siblings and I don't get to play soccer anymore because of COVID. <laughs> How is that adult listening to the young person's concerns, showing up for them and um, yeah, building building a sense of of care and and developing tools where they can really say I hear you I see you and your concerns matter to me I hear you I see you your concerns matter to me Marta's words ring true most certainly for young people but also for not so young people in this COVID moment when we consider the most broad definition for rites of passage, when we consider rituals that ground us or spaces where we need innovators to imagine and create new rituals, perhaps the anchor is that sense of belonging and beholding that Marta is speaking about. So as we find new ways to choreograph new moves, as we survey the landscape we are in for new building materials, and as we consider the constraints on our creativity, we hope you'll carry these closing thoughts from Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean. You've heard me say, I, you know, I think desperation is a spiritual gift mm. because it makes you try things that you wouldn't try otherwise. Mm. And I think we've been in that place now um, for um, about a decade where we can't deny that experimentation has to be part of what we do and then COVID hit mm -hmm. and so now instead of innovation being an extracurricular activity um, we're all innovators now innovation is the main is the main course that's what we're that's what it's about so that's that shift I also think this business about you know it's not just how we gather it's how we are the church um, this is the deeper shift that is going to be the new dance. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation with a student yesterday who's, you know, she's, she, her calling is very clear um, into what she wants to do, but there, and, and it has to do with working with young people. And, but it's not as a traditional youth pastor. It's not as a teacher. It's not, it doesn't have a form. Mm. It has a, it has um, a context, you know, uh, she wants to walk al alongside young people as they are trying to sort through various sexual decisions that they have to make. And, you know, it's, 
there's no job description that goes with it. And what it lays bare is something that's been true for a long time. And that is there, you know, youth ministry, I'm going to talk about youth ministry first, and then we'll talk about what that means. Youth ministry has never been a job description until it, until we made it one, Mm -hmm. you know, and then we had, now we have a youth ministry industry where there are job descriptions and there are standards and it's professional. And I've spent a lot of my career trying to champion those things, but you know what? That's not really what it's about. Youth ministry doesn't have a job description. You do youth ministry in any walk of life, whether it's ministry or not, you know, it's your way of being in the world in the way God has called you to be with young people. Mm-hmm. That's what youth ministry is. Okay. Well, guess what? It's not just youth ministry. Mm-hmm. It's ministry. So the whole shape of what it means to be a pastor, of what it means to be clergy, of what it means to be a leader of a community of faith, suddenly it's far less the person who stands up in front of a room full of people on Sunday mornings and leads the community in worship. Although I'm convinced that that will always be part of it. And we're more like the embedded reporters, you know, during war times, you know, where we are traveling with a group of people and we're in their middle of, of the mess that they're in. And we don't need a building to do that. I mean, we don't need a lot of the trappings to do that. And the truth is we, we don't really need a salary to do that. Hmm. Hmm. So what does that even mean for people who lead faith communities? Right. I'm really, I don't know if you follow Pope Francis at all, but I think he's kind of a genius. He's, hmm. He talks about the church as a field hospital. Hmm. It's a mash unit. It's a, it, it goes where the suffering is and sets up camp and then it moves on. So, you know, I feel like, you know, you know, I spend a lot of time at the beach in the summer. So this image has been on my mind because of that, but the, um, you know, the bricks are crumbling right now. And what if our job isn't to make more bricks to rebuild it? What if our job is to um, do ministry with sandcastles hmm. in some way that uses whatever's under our feet to build something beautiful in a temporary way. And then we move on. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the tide claims the sand. It doesn't, there's no, there's not any less sand. It's just now going to be in a different form and we're going to go on and we're going to build another sandcastle another day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Being Church in the Time of COVID. We hope that this episode has not only resonated with your experience, but freed you to reconsider the distribution systems at your disposal and to do the creative choreography that is needed in your context. Being Church in the Time of COVID is a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. You can learn more about the Reverend Sue Phillips and the Sacred Design Lab at sacred.design. You can learn more about Marta Abouaji and the cutting-edge research of Springtide Research Institute at springtideresearch.org. And you can learn more about the Reverend Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean at ministryincubators.com and, of course, at Princeton Seminary's website, ptsem.edu.